And one of the things that, that we learn uh, is that the, the brain is very consistent in the way that it responds to improvisation. And there are certain parts on the multi-resonance imaging scans that light up when we improvise. And they always light up. And they light up even more when we're improvising with language. And uh, we see those kinds of things, those kinds of patterns. And then we recognize, oh, wait a minute, there might be something here that's that's really important and you know consistent uh, across cultures and whatnot hi i'm ben capolo and welcome to all keyed up creative conversations for today's piano teachers thanks so much for listening today i will be speaking with daryl harper Daryl Harper began studying clarinet at age six in his native Philadelphia and was introduced to jazz at 16 by trombonist Anthony Hurdle. Within a year, he was working professionally and began sitting in at sessions and performing with Tony Williams, Tyrone Brown, Eddie Green, Bootsy Barnes, and other veteran Philadelphia-based jazz artists. Over the years, he has performed with Dee Dee Bridgewater, Roscoe Mitchell, Dave Holland, Oren Evans, Freddie Bryant, Tim Warfield, and Uri Kane. He performed with violinist Regina Carter for two years and toured the U.S., Europe, South America, and the Caribbean in support of her recording, I'll Be Seeing You, A Sentimental Journey. Harper's projects as a leader include the Onus, the piano-clarinet duo Into Something, and the C3 Project, an octet that presents multimedia work that includes dance, video, and poetry. As a composer, Harper has published and recorded over two dozen works. He has written a film score for the award-winning documentary film, Herskovitz at the Heart of Blackness. Harper has a doctorate in jazz studies from New England Conservatory, an MM in jazz studies from Rutgers University, and a BA in music from Amherst College. He currently serves as associate professor in the Department of Music at Amherst. Daryl, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm, I'm really uh, happy to be here. So when I first started this podcast, one of my ideas from the get-go was that most piano teachers have a range of topics that they tend to think about for most of the time, like how to teach dotted quarter notes or cancellation policies. And I want this podcast to deal with those types of issues. And I've had other interviews on topics like this. However, I also wanted to have interviews that go completely outside the bounds of what most teachers are thinking about and introduce them to topics that they likely otherwise would not have considered. And that was my goal with having you on today. You teach a range of classes at Amherst College that encourage students to think about topics such as improvisation and listening with a very broad lens. Today, I'd like to focus on your course, Thinking Through Improvisation. Can you give our listeners kind of a elevator pitch for what you talk about in this course? Sure. Um... Thinking through improvisation is really designed not only for, for music students, but any students who might have aspirations to study anything. And we look at um, how improvisation uh, is kind of built into us, it's wired into us, all of us. It's a, it's a very human activity. And what its usefulness really is, what it, you know, what its practical use is. And, where it comes from and those kinds of things. And then also what happens if we ignore it? You, you know, what, are, what do we stand to lose? What's at stake if we ignore it? So those kinds of things from all different disciplines. 
Yes, I want to follow up on this idea of all different disciplines. Your course draws on a range of topics such as theater, neuroscience, dance, medicine, psychology, religion, physics, and of course, music. Today, we don't have the time to go into any of those fields in any real level of depth, but is there a way you could give us a glimpse into some of the topics your course covers when addressing such a wide range of topics? What are some ways that non-musical fields can shed light into the nature of improvisation in a way that's relevant to music? Sure. Um, I'd, I'd point to the, the neuroscience as one example of what we do, and um, we read a couple of scientific studies in, uh, and that's, that's challenging for all of us, including me. You know, I'm not a, a scientist uh, by training. So one of the things we have to do is learn how to approach that material uh, and what we can draw from it. And one of the things that, that we learn uh, is that the, the brain is very consistent in the way that it responds to improvisation and there are certain parts on the multi-resonance imaging scans that light up when we improvise and they always light up and they light up even more when we're improvising with language and uh, we see those kinds of things those kinds of patterns and then we recognize oh wait a minute there might be something here that's that's really important and you know consistent uh, across cultures and whatnot and then when we look at evolution and we connect the evolutionary biology studies to the, um, to the neuroscience, then we can start to make even more connections. So there, there's some survival function to improvisation and, and on and on. So we, you know, we keep asking questions and, and uh, going further and then we get more questions and then we go further and we get more questions. And then we can connect back to music. Yeah. That's so interesting for you to say that there's a part of your brain that lights up regardless of what type of improvisation you're doing, whether it's improvising through language or these other disciplines, as well as music. Um, because if that's the case, then I'm interested in the fact that if we are so used to improvising and we have a part of our brain that we are always using to improvise, which is the same part of the brain that we use in music, then why is it that when we are on an instrument, suddenly so many students are fearful of improvising. Um, because in reality, every sentence that we say is to an extent improvising. So Absolutely. what do you think is responsible for the reason why so many music students cower in terror when asked to improvise on their instrument? Well, I, I love that you that you use that example of, of improvising with sentences as we're doing right now. You know, I, I'm... Mm -hmm improvising as I speak, you're improvising as you speak to an extent, and I, I, um, uh, I, I, that's always a very effective example with students and a good starting place. But to answer your question, um, you know, improvisation has actually, we've, we've slowly weeded it out of our training. So um, even high-level conservatory training tends not to uh, contain or have room for improvisation, and and this is a, a fairly recent phenomenon in in the kind of history of of training as a musician um, uh, in in Western classical music. I mean, uh, for for most of its history, uh, Western classical musicians actually 
practice improvisation regularly. It was just a regular part of, and a natural part of of uh, of our our practice. So, uh, for instance, if you go back even as recently as say Haydn, um, Haydn was a master improviser, but not he wasn't a master improviser like. Oh my goodness, Haydn's a master improviser. Look at you know at how amazing he is. It it was natural. It was the way that he communicated with other musicians. They they would be sitting around in community in a court preparing to uh, work up uh, whatever they were presenting. They were exchanging ideas. They were saying, Oh, what about this? Well, what what if I do this when you do that? And it and it was very much like a conversation. And that is actually a pretty normal kind of uh, uh, exchange for musicians. Uh, we, we specialized afterwards, you know, 19th century industrialization, the same way that we specialized in everything else. You know, what happened at the Ford Motor Company also happened in music, and the, the composition gets separated from the performing, and the performing gets separated from the improvising. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think um, students become fearful of imp improvising in music because what they experience is this kind of uh, separate discipline. Oh, I, I want to be a composer, so I'm going to do this. Oh, I want to be a pianist, so I'm going to do this. And they, you know, they get put on a track and they're not really getting the whole picture usually. That is so interesting for you to say that this idea that at the beginning of the 1900s in music, we started to specialize and not kind of do everything the way we used to. And that was not a uniquely musical phenomenon. So in your course, you talk about how there are, I guess, a lot of other um, areas that did that too, like you described Ford Motor Company. So you're saying there was like kind of a societal trend towards specialization at the beginning of the 1900s? Sure, sure, and and really global. I mean, it was it was a, a really powerful, important uh, cross-cultural phenomenon that affected uh, many around the globe. So it you know it's not to be trifled with. It, it it's a serious thing, and and it's something that's helpful to be cognizant of as we approach teaching, you know, if we're teaching piano, um, you know, what I, what I recommend is, hey, um, it can be very modest if, if, uh, if, if when I was taking piano, beginning piano and I had to play lightly row, you know. <laughs> yes, I've taught that one too. <laughs> yeah, right? yep. And, um, you know, something simple like, okay, play that first phrase again, Ben, and this time, uh, just make up a, a little, you know, answer to to that yeah. first phrase, and and that's doable for mm -hmm. for kids uh, when they're starting out, and it's fun, and they love it, and it's improvisation, you know, it's not it's not Charlie Parker, but it but it's <laughs> you know it's definitely we're getting there one step at a time. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So I'm interested in you were saying that. Um, this idea of specialization was to an extent international. So I am interested in how uh, different cultures sort of reacted to that trend and how that affected music in different cultures. A lot of your scholarship focuses on the relationship between culture and music. So approaching improvisation from that bent, 
Is this aversion to improvisation to any degree cross-cultural, or are there any concepts or applications of improvisation from non-Western music that you highlight in your courses or that you've done any uh, research on that you think are particularly useful for Western teachers of music to consider? Sure. I I guess the way I would say it is it it you know you definitely see some cultural differences. Um, mm-hmm. It's not so much that oh here's a culture that hasn't been Im- impacted by uh, global industrialization. You know, let's see what they're doing. Uh, even in our own uh, kind of complex culture, our constellation of cultures in the West. Uh, I'm a jazz musician, so yeah. um, that is something that taught me a lot about improvisation, and and I think there are some examples there that can be very useful. I do uh, show students other examples of improvisation. Um, one that we do is I, I ask them to uh, perform uh, two against three. So in in one hand, you know. And the other hand, so. Yep. Yeah, my teacher would tell me to think of Carol of the Bells when doing that. Okay, right, yeah, <laughs> dee, da, da, dee, dee. that's good. Um, but one of the things that we look at cross-culturally is that if you're um, looking at African diaspora rhythms, so say Latin America, uh, music coming out of Cuba, say, that or or west africa you know music coming out of ghana um that uh, performance of of those two things in your body at the same time is something that is just built into the culture of the music education uh, from very young you know very young children learn how to do this and it, it's nothing to them like they right. they're you know, it's just natural, like eating or, or anything else. Right. And um, usually the students who are starting out, uh, they kind of struggle with it, and it, it takes a while to develop it. And going through that process of just practicing that one thing through the class and then uh, arriving at a, a time where you feel like, oh, I have it now, I have it now, that um, I think is, is really helpful for students to understand. Now imagine what it's like if you were doing that when you were three years old. And imagine what it would feel like if this were just integrated into your yeah. your worldview. You know, you you and and then making that connection with improvisation. Like if if this is part of your musical education, um, from very young and not because you're a special musician and you're going to be a star and you're going to tour the world but just because we all make music and this is the way we make music in this neighborhood and you need to do this because everyone's doing this and then then i think they start to get the idea that oh okay this this is a matter of just putting the time in and as i put the time in you know it will come it's not it's not superhuman it's not you know um mystical or anything it, it's uh it's just you know practice it's a practice yeah what i find sad is it seems like that attitude you're describing of it's ingrained in you from a young age is what western music education was like at least a little bit more than it maybe is now yeah. prior to the 1900s 
Um, it's sad that we've kind of lost that. And going back to this idea you brought up earlier in this interview that you're interested in what the effects are when some of our natural impetus towards improvisation is suppressed, I would like to talk about kind of the teaching and pedagogical benefits of learning to improvise. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, and I assume yours, you know, when even if students are fearful of improvising, it's still important to try to work with them on it anyway. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the pedagogical benefits children and teenagers and music students in general receive by learning to improvise? Sure, sure. It's, um, I think some of the most powerful things come in this way. Um, you mentioned speaking. Uh, you know, we all speak extemporaneously. And if you walk into a room and uh, and someone asks you a question and it's unscripted and someone says, hey, um, you know, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? It's important to be able to do that, right? It's important to be able to do that in, in a coherent way. That's how we make relationships that, you know, that's one of our skills and it requires improvisation. So imagine that you're a conservatory trained professional level musician and someone says to you, hey, uh, can you play a little something for me? And not, not from memory, like I want you to make something up right here on the spot. For us to say, well, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that unless there's notation in front of me. That, that's actually not okay. It's not okay with me. Like it, it's, you know, th- that means something isn't uh, operating in a way. It's, it's so natural to say, well, I'm a highly trained musician. I, of course I can play music. Of course I can make up a melody <laughs> on the spot like that. You know, that's, that's something that, that I think we all want to have as a skill set. And what I would say about the fear is it goes away really quickly. It goes away really quickly. Um, it's not going to stay there, not even for more than a few days, I would say, of, of doing this kind of practice if, it, if, it's, you know, if it's done well. Um, and then what you have, the tool that you have when you walk into that room, uh, even if it's an audition, uh, even if it's uh, you know, something where the professional stakes are actually you know, significant, uh, to be able to, to create something in the moment is a really powerful tool. You know, it, it's, it, it ends up affecting the way you interpret the score. It ends up affecting the way you hear, the way you think about music. You're playing Brahms and you come across a phrase and, and maybe the way that you've been taught to play it all of that time by your teacher, it must be played this way. It must be played this way. If you play it that way, it's wrong. It's a, but but all of a sudden you're you're empowered to make your own musical decisions. Right. You're empowered to say, wait a minute. You know what I'm hearing and what I'm connecting with what I know. It connects. It connects to your, you know, all of your knowledge and all of your experience, and it allows you to elaborate on that. You know, that's the power of improvisation. Well, you sold me, and I'm sure you sold a lot of our listeners. So now the question is, once we've decided that we want to encourage our students to improvise, how to teach it? And in my own teaching, my biggest challenge in teaching improvisation is teaching it in a way where there's a sequence of it, where like the work from the previous week is now maintained, and we're building on it this week. 
it's a lot easier for me to do that if I'm teaching something like music theory where like right. I can t- take what we learned last week and build from it. Do you have any thoughts on creating kind of a long-term incremental plan to teach improvisation or any other advice about teaching improvisation? Well, I, you know, as we touched on earlier, I would definitely say, you know, it, it's fine to start modestly. And mm-hmm. the the most important thing about it is that it it's a regular uh, practice that, that we come back to uh, in the lesson. And... Um, and I think uh, what you just described is important. It's an important point because the one thing about improvisation is it doesn't really lend itself to, uh, well, you know, we're going to do it yeah. this way and do these steps right. and here it is right. and I'm putting it all in a book and here, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it actually, you know, fortunately for us, it, it sort of pushes against that. And for me, the focus is always... Uh, going back to the student and asking the student to reveal to me, you know, what are what are you hearing? Like that, making some time for that. Um, when I'm teaching an introductory course now, where the students are just learning solfege for the first time, and in our warm-ups, in the very first five minutes of of class, I'll you know, do re mi re do do re mi re, you know. I'll sing, they'll repeat, I'll sing, they'll repeat. And very quickly, like by the second week of class, I ask them to improvise. I'll sing do, re, mi, re, do. And then I'll ask them to just add one note, you know, one other pitch. You pick a pitch and you add it. And that is really powerful. They're they're composing, you know, on a, right. on a very small scale. And then at to your question about how do you build on it incrementally, the way that I do it is is very much by uh, being informed by what they're showing me. So, okay, now you're comfortable doing this. Let's you know, mm-hmm. let's add a little more. Let's add a little more. Let's add a little more. And and I would say you know by the time um, say we get through a year's worth of of working together. The students actually feel comfortable improvising and doing it in a way that's fairly elaborate, like here's a song, you know, here's a 32 bar <laughs> song with chords and a melody. Like, a, you know, after a couple of, of courses, we can do the composing and the improvising and the performing all together. And again, the stakes are never about I'm going to be a professional musician. Maybe, maybe some of them are, but that's not the point. You know, the point is right. that you know tapping into that musical uh, ability that that we all have, that uh, ability to create, to compose, that ability to perform, and that ability to improvise. I'm. I think that that uh, course you're describing of teaching students solfege, so where you teach them do, re, and then me, and then you ask them to kind of improvise just using those restrictions, it goes back to what you were saying about the connection between music and language, because that is how language is taught for the most part. Like if I was learning French or Spanish, first I would be given a very limited set of vocabulary words, and then I would be asked to create sentences using those words, and no one would be intimidated or feel that that's a radical teaching approach. It's really just in music, where for whatever reason, we only have students do these pre-planned things. Uh, Although uh, our interview today focused more on your 
academic interests. You're very successful as a jazz musician. Can you talk about what your training in improvisation was like growing up and discuss how your understanding and approach to improvisation have changed over the course of your career as a jazz performer? Sure. Um, I, I wasn't really aware that I had been practicing any kind of improvisation until I started studying jazz. And by then, I had been doing music for a long time, uh, probably about 10 years or more. I was 16 years old, and uh, you mentioned Anthony Hurdle in the introduction. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he was a really important uh, teacher for me who, who just changed things. Um, and he is the first teacher I had who centered improvisation and said, you know, we're really going to focus on this. We're going to spend a lot of time on it and, and develop your ability, you know, as, as much as we can. Um, and I would say that was uh, uh, instrumental in, in changing my, uh, my view of where improvisation could fit in and, and what it could do. Um, that kind of two-year period, 16, 17, uh, the end of my high school years, um, really shifted everything for me. And I was still studying, actually, for many years hence, you know, studying uh, classical clarinet and doing recitals and doing chamber music and I was doing classical piano. Oh, I did not know that you played classical piano. I didn't read yeah, that. Yeah, so, so actually having all these things uh, at the same time, uh, it was really yeah, fantastic great. to be able to make these connections of, oh, jazz musicians do this, and in classical music we do this, mm -hmm. and in piano we do this, and in clarinet we do this, and this is harmony, and I have to know my chords in order to improvise, and this, you know, it was all coming together in this really exciting way. So in, in my own training, I mean, I'm really grateful that um, uh, in jazz I play an unusual instrument. The clarinet is not the typical uh, path. Usually clarinetists usually switch to saxophone and become saxophonists. Um, and my teacher said, uh, Tony Hurdle, he said, don't, don't switch, you know, stay on clarinet, that's mm -hmm. going to be really important. But what it meant is that for the rest of my training, in order to have a clarinet teacher, the only people I could find were in the, in the Western classical world. So I always had that influence all the way into graduate school, all the way through my doctorate. I always had a clarinet teacher who was coming from a, you know, an opera orchestra or coming from a symphony orchestra or a chamber music background. That, and so that's always in there and being combined and mixed with the jazz improvisation. And it got me to think about improvisation across those domains, at least. Well, I think that's very inspiring that you can have this decades of, and decades of experience as a professional jazz performer and you're able to pinpoint your foundational thinking and improvisation to a single individual, in this case, Tony Hurdle. Um, and I think it shows the power that teachers can have in our life, even though Absolutely. he was your teacher when you're a teenager, that you can still be thinking about what he taught you with improvisation. Uh, finally, before we go, can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to nowadays and where they can go to learn more about you? Sure. Um, I, I'm working on an album. Uh, the, our plan was to have it out by now, but the pandemic has slowed us down a little bit. So it, 
it's sort of uh, in post-production, close to post-production, I would say. We have a couple more things to record. To clarify, what type of album is this? It's, um, it's the title of the album is Chamber Made, and it's uh, actually on this very topic, it's a, a kind of a look at a combination of chamber music and jazz. Um, so uh, one piece, for example, is a, a three movement piece by the composer Ryan Truesdell, uh, and he wrote for us a string quartet with clarinet, clarinet quintet. And um, uh, Ryan's a, a really beautiful uh, jazz composer. And um, uh, in writing for this combination that, that we see with the Brahms Quintet and the Mozart Quintet, uh, you know, he had all those models in mind. Uh, but the, the, some of the qu big questions in the piece are how do you take that setting of string quartet with clarinet which is this chamber music setting that requires this way of uh, speaking with each other you know this this really close sort of phrasing together uh, listening together building the chords together but then also have that jazz language that two against three or that you know um, the the rhythmic language of of jazz like we ha we have to be conversant with both of them. So it's really fun to play, really interesting, really challenging. Um, and that's the next uh, project we'll be putting out. Um, I was touring uh, when everything stopped with uh, Jason Moran um, in his uh, Harlem Hellfighters project, which is a tribute to World War I veteran James Reese Europe, uh, who's an African-American man who uh, was instrumental in bringing jazz, the jazz sound to Europe, uh, right around World War, World War I. Mm. Uh, so th those are two projects. Um, website, social media, DarylHarborJazz.com. Uh, I'd say that's the easiest way to stay in touch. I appreciate the, the opportunity to share that. Thanks. Well, I really admire everything you're doing, and particularly how interdisciplinary you are, like both within music you're describing classical influences and jazz influence, and then in your course, you obviously bring in all sorts of disciplines besides music. Um, you make me wish I was still in college. Um, really appreciate everything you do, and thanks so much, Daryl, for coming on the podcast today. No, thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>